Well, we find ourselves in Habakkuk tonight, and uh, one of the most exciting things about the lesson tonight is uh, as we move through the lesson, as we get to the end of the lesson, you will see one of the reasons I'm such a, a huge believer in studying verse by verse in context. I think it will open up your understanding in some ways, if, if you, and, and I see this with the commentators. Some of them, it seems to me, don't, don't study quite like this like they should, and so they don't always arrive at conclusions as accurate as they might. But anyway, uh, Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 14, woe to the wicked. And uh, we note the theme here in the book is the just shall live by faith. Uh, we got a first question, God's answer, and then Habakkuk's second question and God's second answer. We're in the middle of that, that second answer. Well, Habakkuk wrote sometime just prior to the fall of the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, which fell to Babylon. There were really three sieges of Jerusalem by Babylon in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. Of course, uh, the temple being destroyed in 586 B.C., and they were put out of the land for 70 years. He's writing just before this time of the sieges of, of Jerusalem and, uh, and of Judah by Babylon. Well, the prophet was very troubled. Habakkuk was very troubled uh, by what he saw amongst his own people, the, the violence, the corruption, the lack of regard for God's law. And uh, he just could not understand why God had not done something about it. God, why do you just kind of seem to be passive? God, why don't you intervene? That's, that's really where he's coming from in those first four verses of chapter 1. Well, God then told Habakkuk, okay, you, you need to look a little, have a little broader perspective. Look among the nations and see what I am doing with the Chaldeans. Oh, my goodness. Now, the prophet had not considered this. But God, in effect, said the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. And God said, in effect, that he's going to use the Babylonians to bring about disciplinary judgment against his people Judah. So he's not passive. He's working quietly behind the scenes in the bigger uh, scope of things. Well, that really perplexed the prophet. He could not understand how the moral character of God could use someone more wicked, that is the Babylonians, to bring about judgment on someone less wicked, as he perceived it, the nation of Judah. Well, Habakkuk then said he would take his place as a watchman on the wall and await God's answer. Well, God answered Habakkuk, uh, not with an intellectually satisfying answer, but rather he took him back to the great issue of life, which is the issue of faith. Faith. You know, life is a lot about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, what's he want? He wants you to have a walk of faith. He wants you to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's the key verse of the book. And so we noted <clears throat> Habakkuk 2.4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The proud here represents uh, the arrogant Babylonians who were very self-assured. They were a self-made people as they saw it in their own mind. They didn't need God. They were their own God and depended on their own military might. In contrast, the just shall live by his faith. He realizes, you know what? It's not all about me. It's about my God who is over all. Faith is what guides the life of the just. We're justified by faith. And then as the just, we live by faith. 
Faith is the defining principle of those who really know God. Uh, It's the difference between those who will spend eternity with God and those that will spend eternity separated from God. It's the issue of faith. And right here is the point. We don't always understand what's going on. And that's where faith comes into play. Uh, We don't always understand the why. Why is this happening? And it's a very common complaint, even in the scriptures. Even some of the most godly men, like Job. Why? Why is this happening? Good question. We just don't always understand the why. But, But we know God. As believers, we know God. And uh, our calling as believers is to trust Him when we can't make sense of things. That's what He wants us to do. That's one of the key key lessons in Habakkuk. When you can't make sense of it, come back to who God is, the God that you know, and remember, the just shall live by faith. That's our calling. Well, Habakkuk was a man of faith. Uh, His complaint was not born out of unbelief, but really out of confusion. He was trying to make sense of it. He couldn't quite understand it. But his faith is plainly stated. uh, Really, before he states his his real consternation in chapter 1, he he states his faith and reiterates it here in chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Talking about his own people. So he has a faith that is rooted in his covenant God. He uses the name Yahweh here. Lord is is Yahweh. Uh, Everlasting, O Lord, my God. Uh, He's uh, the covenant-keeping God, eternal, holy, sovereign rock. So he's not coming from a place of unbelief. He states his faith in, in God. Well, in effect, God told Habakkuk that his people, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith in his character, not by understanding confusing circumstances. So God made the issue all about faith. But then God did have something to say in reference to Babylon. Habakkuk has way too limited a view in terms of the the big picture, which we all do. Uh, We have a very small mind, you understand, with a very limited perspective in comparison to God. Well, Habakkuk only saw Judah initially. That was his focus. Only what's going on with Judah. But God saw the nations and what he was doing in the bigger scheme of things. Habakkuk then saw only the immediate picture of the Babylonian takeover. But God saw the big picture of Babylon's coming demise, which is what he now reveals to Habakkuk. Yes, Babylon would be used to bring about disciplinary judgment on Judah, but Babylon was not going to just get away with her wickedness. No, God was also going to hold Babylon accountable and judge her for his, her sinful ways. And this is what God now goes on to address. So let's pick it up, chapter 2 and verse 5. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. What we have in this verse is Babylon personified. It's really talking about Babylon in a, in a personified way. They were a society given over to wine, alcohol, and they were also intoxicated by power and greed. A mind controlled by wine doesn't think clearly, 
You know, you see this lots of places in Proverbs in particular. But it doesn't think clearly. And it has an exaggerated view of self. And this defined Babylon. Now, there's a double emphasis on pride in the immediate context here. Uh, Remember in verse 4, God says, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him. And now again here in verse 5, it says he is a proud man. There's a double emphasis on pride in the immediate context here. And, of course, we see this epitomized in what great leader of Babylon, the key leader of Babylon, the, the Babylonian Empire was Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, and his chief characteristic, you know, before he was really converted, was the issue of pride. And uh, he thought he was all that until God put him out to pasture for seven years, eat grass for a while, and you begin to see things properly. Uh, you don't want to smoke it, but if you eat it, you, you might come to yourself. Anyway, he did. And uh, we note that in due time, however, uh, Babylon did fell, did fall. And uh, it fell one night Well, when Belshazzar, uh, who happened to be king at this point, and his entourage were sinfully partying and carrying on, carrying on. And they, and they were drinking wine, and they said, let's call, let's get the vessels from the temple. That sounds like a good idea. And uh, so, boy, that did not make God happy as they were carrying on and partying that way. Suddenly, in the midst of that arrogant partying, a hand appeared and started writing on the wall with a message loosely translated, which said, your party is over. Your party is over. And it was that very night. Babylon's party was over. The fall of Babylon happened in a night. It happened in conjunction with wine. It happened in conjunction with arrogant pride. So note that combination here of of wine and pride. It brought Babylon down. Well, Babylon is depicted as having an insatiable desire to take over more and more nations and peoples. It was like Babylon had an addiction for conquest. It's described in these terms. He enlarges his desire as hell. And hell is pictured as, as never being full. It's always one, there's always room for more. It takes in more. It's, it's never say, well, hell's full, sorry. Nope, hell's never full. Always takes more. And he is like death. Cannot be satisfied. Death is always wanting, taking more too. Taking more all the time. We have some verses, uh, you know, that bring this out. Proverbs 27, 20. Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. And then in Proverbs 30, the leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and fire Never says enough. Verse 6. Will not all these take up a Proverbs? Talking about the nations that have been abused by Babylon. Will not all these take up a proverb against him? And a taunting riddle against him? And say, woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Now verse 6 begins a series of five woe oracles directed against Babylon, consisting basically of three verses each. So we got five woes in chapter two from here on out, beginning at chapter six. This series of woes is broken up into two sections. Section one is seen in verses six through 14 that we're looking at tonight. And the second section is found in verses 15 through 20. Both sections end with a summary big picture statement emphasizing the ultimate glory 
and greatness of God. You realize what's being contrasted all the way through here? You have Babylon, this great, great world empire. And it's emphasized in terms of its greatness here. But God is greater. That's the point. The nations that Babylon oppressed are pictured as speaking. And they're speaking in taunting proverbs or riddles about her brutality and her coming judgment. Which just happens to be, as it works out, prophetic. These, in effect, are taunt songs. Now, woes. Woes are interesting. Uh, The prophets often used woes. Jesus pronounced woes on the Pharisees in the New Testament. Uh, The idea of a, a woe is a judgmental pronouncement indicating distress or disaster coming your way. Uh, The word woe has a sense of alas for you or how tragic for you. Woe upon you, bad, disastrous things upon you. A woe oracle consisted of two parts. Number one, a declaration of wrongs committed. And number two, the pronouncement of impending judgment. Well, Babylon forcefully took what was not theirs. Notice, did you see that in the middle of verse 6? Woe to him who increases what is not his. Babylon's forcefully taking what really not rightfully theirs. And it was very forceful in the plunder of of ill-gotten gain. And so the cry went up, how long, how long is this going to be allowed to go on? Seemed like never-ending when it was happening. The statement regarding him loading himself with many pledges, uh, commentators believe this refers to oppressive taxation. And uh, the Babylonians, when they took over people, put in place very oppressive uh, financial systems that were very beneficial to Babylon, of course. It filled their coffers and, and very much oppressed the people that they took over. And that seems to be the idea here of these, uh, of these pledges. Loads himself with many pledges uh, over taxation, uh, charging excessive interest and so forth. Verse 7. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty. God says, you know what? I'm going to turn the tables on Babylon. Uh, The creditors are the nations whom Babylon has ravaged and financially extorted. Holman Christian Standard Bible. Babylon's plunder from the nations is like a debt from creditors that they must eventually repay. Those that Babylon victimized will suddenly awake to make Babylon the victim. The tables were soon to be turned. Verse 8 continues. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. There's an abiding principle in the word of God. And that is, be sure your sin will find you out. People do reap what they sow. Sometimes it seems like they get away with it, but they don't really. I mean, if you see the big picture, they don't really get away with it. Sooner or later, it comes back on them. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That is an abiding principle in the word of God and is applied to Babylon here. Uh, God is telling Habakkuk, they're not going to get away with this. Yes, I'm going to use them to humble my people, to discipline my people. But then I'm going to turn around and I am going to judge Babylon for her sinful ways. She's not going to get away with this. Because you have plundered many nations. 
The remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. God has the last word. Dictators don't. They may strut their stuff for a moment, but their time is coming. Don't be fooled. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, whatever a nation sows, they're going to reap accordingly. It's a permanent abiding reality. Next woe, verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. So here we have the introduction to the, the second woe pronounced against Babylon. Greedy covetousness drove the nation with the goal of making themselves an unconquerable power. And it is here pictured as, uh, as an eagle's nest. It's way up on high. They're like pictured as, as building their nest way up high. Way out of reach. Moody Bible Commentary says, The eagle's nest was considered secure from the reach of enemies. So the Babylonians, who were great builders, thought their empire was unassailable. That's the idea here. That's the picture. But it was really a false security. Because, you see, no one can build so high that it's out of the reach of God. God's always higher. And people who do this have way too small a view of God. Verse 10, you give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. In other words, the plans of the Babylonians were evil. They devised cutting off, that is destroying many peoples, many nations, and in doing so were really sinning against their own soul. In seeking to destroy others in this, in this greedy, violent, evil way, they were actually bringing about their own destruction. Funny how that works with God in the equation. Uh, again, the uh, ESV translates this verse at the end there. Uh, you have forfeited your life. You have forfeited your life. Verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. The stone's going to cry out. And every time these are you're talking about stones that they had stolen so they could build buildings and so forth. And the beams that they had taken. Now remember Genesis 4.10. In Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, quote, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a way of saying that God sees and knows all and therefore holds accountable. We have the same sort of thing here. This, the stones and the beams plundered from other nations, in effect, before God serve as a witness against Babylon. They didn't realize it, but God is the one who sees and holds accountable. And these things are, again, personified as being a witness against them. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. And this is what Babylon did. Verse 12 here introduces the third in the, the series of five woes. Verse 8 spoke of men's blood and violence. Here the emphasis is on the building of Babylon with oppressive bloodshed and iniquity. Iniquity refers to that which is uh, wicked, immoral, uh, in character. It's the idea of being wicked or immoral in character. It's the idea of depravity. It's really the nature of, of sin. Versus the actual act of sin. It's more the depravity behind it is the idea of iniquity. 
So this city was built on, on bloodshed and depravity. Sinful, perverse thinking. Nebuchadnezzar used subjugated peoples as forced labor and, and took special pride in the glory of Babylon, for which, of course, he took all the credit. Is not this great Babylon that I have built? Yeah, with bloodshed and iniquity. Harold L. Wilmington wrote this. Superbly, he's talking about Babylon here now, superbly constructed. It spread over an area of 15 square miles, the Euphrates River flowing diagonally across the city. The famous historian Herodotus said the city was surrounded by a wall 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. That's a pretty good sized wall. Okay, 350 feet high. How are we going to scale that baby? I mean, and uh, they had a thought of everything. Listen to this. Yes, it was uh, 350 feet high and 87 feet thick, extending 35 feet below the ground to prevent tunneling. Well, you got to go pretty deep to get under that thing too, right? They thought of everything, height and depth. And wide enough for six chariots to drive abreast. Around the top of the wall were 250 watchtowers placed in strategic locations. Outside the wall was a, was a large ditch or moat which surrounded the city and was kept filled with water from the Euphrates River. Within this wall, they had a hundred gates of brass. They had the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, arranged in an, in an area 400 feet square and raised in, in perfectly cut terraces, one above the other. They soared to a height of 350 feet. Viewers could make their way to the, the top by means of a stairway, which was 10 feet wide. Babylon was literally a city of gold. The city had 53 temples, 180 altars to Ishtar. Well, it just gives you a flavor for the building that Babylon did. And, and they were so proud of what they had done. But how had they done it? Bloodshed and iniquity is how they built this. But right here at this point, right here at this point, is an insertion. Right after stating, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Right after that statement, we have in fact, in effect, a divine interruption. A special announcement that addresses this atrocity. Verse 13. Behold, it is not. Note the word not. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain. Notice that phrase, Lord of hosts. This is God's military title. You know, the Bible calls God a man of war, different places. This is his military title. Uh, It more literally is Yahweh of the armies of heaven. Lord of hosts is literally Lord of armies. The Old Testament prophets use this designation of God to emphasize him as the all-powerful one. The all-powerful one who is over all the supernatural and natural forces. Who accomplishes his purposes and none can thwart him. It's a powerful God. Well, you realize the context here, right? You realize the context. At the moment, it looked like Babylon was unstoppable. The cry, how long, was a cry of anguish. There seemed to be no way of stopping the one who builds with bloodshed and iniquity. 
How can we stop these atrocities? Note the emphasis on all nations, verse 5. All peoples, verse 5. Many nations, verse 8. Many peoples, verse 10. This is what it looked like. Nobody's stopping this, this movement. This bloodshed movement, this iniquity movement, they're just taking over everything. Whoa, we're all in trouble. But note the word not. It is not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord of hosts. And, and what is not of God does not last. And so he says, all this work of the peoples to build the great empire of Babylon really amounts to just fuel for the fire. It's going up in a puff of smoke. It won't last. The labor of the peoples just feeds the fire. He's talking about the, uh, the Babylonian peoples. Just feeds the fire. And nations that worry themselves in vain. Nations who weary themselves in wicked self-pursuit, as Babylon was doing, weary themselves in vain. Such was the case with Babylon. Babylon was so proud of themselves and their glory that, that they thought they had made themselves strong like this. In fact, they believed in, remember in chapter 1, they believed in their own military might as their God, in effect. But God says, you know what? It's all fuel for the fire and vanity. And I'm reminded of Psalm 127.1, which says, and Lord, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Only that which God is in lasts. Is God in it? He wasn't in this. Otherwise, it's all vain, empty, and ultimately useless. The cities that Babylon built, starting with the city of Babylon itself, was merely fuel for the fire and a wearying of themselves in vain. I don't care what, how much effort you put into this, it's all going to be for nothing, is what God is saying. Well, you know what happened, right? We know history. Less than 100 years later, uh, in 539 BC, Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus the Great. The plunder was thus plundered, even as prophesied by God through Habakkuk. What was prophecy is now history. But then this big picture footnote, which fits in well with the introduction of the Lord of hosts mentioned in verse 13. In contrast to the vain efforts to build a lasting empire, built on bloodshed and iniquity, is the coming, are you ready for this? Kingdom of the Lord, as referenced in verse 14. Everybody, no exceptions in our camp, certainly, recognize that verse 14 is a statement about the coming kingdom. What a great encouragement. In the midst of a very dark season. Verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This clearly is a statement about the coming millennial kingdom in which Jesus Christ shall rule in righteousness as King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. 
Now, this verse is very closely related to Isaiah 11, 9, which is undeniably a millennial kingdom context. Here's what Isaiah 11, 9 reads like. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in Isaiah eleven nine, it says the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And here in Habakkuk 2.14, it says the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord are very closely related. The glory of the Lord in this context here in Habakkuk, and here's where I say it's good to think in context about the themes that we are studying and considering. The glory of the Lord in this context here in Habakkuk has to do with God's ruling power. You see, Babylon was currently ruling, but Babylon was soon to be brought down. In contrast, there was coming a future day with the glory of God's power, the Lord of hosts, which would be all-encompassing, inescapable, and all-enveloping as the waters cover the sea. You see, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, he will rule in an all-encompassing fashion with a rod of iron. Nobody's going to be walking around on planet Earth and say, I wonder who's in charge. Uh, They're going to know who's in charge. The glory of the Lord is going to be clearly on display everywhere. Back in the Old Testament, this is what's promised to the Son in Psalm 2.9. You shall break them, talking about the nations of the earth, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You know what? All resistance is going to be broken. You know how Psalm 2 starts. You know, they're, they're saying, we want to break uh, asunder his bonds and we're tired. We don't want God to have any rule over us. Okay, just hang on there, partner. He's coming. Revelation 19.15, describing the com- second coming of Jesus Christ. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And then one of my favorite chapters in the Bible really dovetails here with what we're seeing in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. Isaiah 40 verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then he develops this as you go down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. I want you to connect the glory of the Lord shall be revealed to he comes with a strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. The glory of the Lord is his power put on display throughout the entire world through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's ultimate answer to the tyranny of Babylon. Babylon taking over the nations, taking over the peoples. God says, you're thinking way too small. I've got a bigger plan here. It's a kingdom plan. Babylon is representative of a rebel world system. You see, Babylon is a place where organized idolatry first began and then spread throughout the known world, the whole world. 
And in the last days, when the time is right, wickedness will again be centered in Babylon as the catalyst for last day's evil under Antichrist. This little prophecy, this little vision is tucked away in Zechariah chapter 5. And I want to pick out a couple of things here related to last day's Babylon. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. And he also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a, a lead disc lifted up. And this is woman sitting inside the basket. So, you know, there's a lot of imagery going on here. But there's this uh, woman pictured sitting inside the basket. And for now, it was kind of suppressed with the lead disc holding her, holding her down in there. But uh, then he said, this is wickedness. This is what she represents, is wickedness here. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Okay, kind of suppressed for the time. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, uh, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where, where are they carrying the basket? Where are they taking wickedness? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Where is the land of Shinar? Oh, that happens to be Babylon. Babylon. They, uh, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, when the time is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. You see, there's a, there's a great spiritual harlot called Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation, which is really the unification of all false religion, which all comes together under Antichrist, ultimately, and comes to a climax in Revelation 17. This then gives way to the final form of Babylon, which is commercial Babylon under Antichrist in Revelation 18. You see, through economics, Antichrist will control the world, as seen in Revelation 18. Revelation 13 is clear that without allegiance to the Antichrist, no one will be able to legally buy or sell. Now, I seriously wonder if, if uh, the government controls put in place, and really almost a, a worldwide basis, uh, under the whole issue of COVID, are not really kind of a precursor for total economic control under the final form of Babylon under Antichrist? I think things are building to somewhere. But in the end, Babylon is going down. She went down as prophesied, but the Bible predicts a last day's comeback under Antichrist when the rebel Babylonian system will be in full bloom and then a final put down under God's judgment, which will be followed by the fulfillment of Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I say, bring it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We have reason to be encouraged. We not only read the back of the book, we read the middle of the book, and the whole book is consistent, right? Uh, one of these days, the glory of the Lord. Uh, who has the power? You know, we talk about the Lord's Prayer, quote-unquote. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for it. it is. That's a biblical prayer. It's just not, you know, it's just not part of the, quote-unquote, Lord's Prayer. <laughs> but it is a biblical prayer. And it will take place, even as inserted right here in the specific context in the book of Habakkuk. 
Babylon, the in, you know, this great power nobody could stop and is just vicious and depraved and iniquity and bloodshed. How long? Well, it kind of has its way and takes its course until God intervenes in a kingdom way. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed as the waters cover the sea. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close this in prayer tonight.